Blog Talk Radio. Progressive News Network. I'm Brooke Hines, your host. Yes, I am forever sitting in now for Rick Spizak, who has hit the road at the worst possible moment. Rick did the thing that so many of us want to do when we retire, which is get an RV and hit the road. So they planned this for mm, months probably longer. He mentioned it to me months ago. They sold their house, got a fabulous RV, and right as this virus thing was hitting, they took off. They were off on the road. So very interesting times indeed for our beloved founder and host of the show, Rick Spizak. And I've got a special message that Rick wanted me to convey to our listeners. And this is just general having to do with what's going on right now with the uh, virus and everything. And he says, a tribute to nurses and doctors, a tribute to nurses and doctors fighting raw stupidity. I have been a student of microbiology and have worked in neurological labs doing research, and I understand both the power and the vulnerability of commercial science and medicine. I would not be alive today were it not for the power of science nor the compassionate, life-giving care of medical professionals. The greatest human achievement is not in boardrooms of this country, but in the trembling voice and the commitment to saving lives represented by the heroic young nurse. A young woman or man whose safety is a reused mask kept in a paper bag she carries back and forth with her to the front lines of science and compassion each time she goes to work in the emergency room. She places her life in jeopardy to protect the lives of strangers. That is heroism. That is compassion. And that is heroism and compassion of the first order. And, uh, Rick couldn't be any more right with this. That is exactly what that is. Um, You know, and it doesn't feel like heroism when, when you're out there on the front lines, I have friends in, in uh, um, critical care and in, in nursing and healthcare in general, and you do what it takes. That's what you do. You go in and you do what it takes every single time you go in. Um, It is a disgrace that we don't have the materials, the resources uh, to protect the people on the front lines. We'll be talking about that a little bit more uh, in the future. I want to get, I want to spend some good quality time on supply chain and why uh, a lot of this has gone sideways the way that it has. But uh, with that out of the way, let me tell you a little bit about the show tonight. It's a, it's a continuation. Coronavirus continues uh, amid bad news for Dems and democracy in general. Uh, 
I've got uh, a week's worth of political news and Corona news. And I got to tell you, as I've been going through picking stories to share and, you know, finding data that I think is, is important for people to know, uh, I am amazed at how it is nearly impossible at this point to untangle, to tease apart uh, Corona news from political news, where we're basically very much on the same page. Uh, there's there's quite a dialectic between the two, if you want to uh, put it in those terms. It is Sunday, March 29, 2020. Never in a million years thought that this is where we would be um, heading into, uh, you know, late spring, early summer. This is a, this is, um, just as weird for everybody as it is for anybody. And it's starting to be very tragic for a lot of people. And, uh, so, uh, we found out just a little while ago, there was a trending topic on Twitter that country music star from the 90s, Joe Diffie, passed away uh, from complications of uh, coronavirus. And it was revealed this week that close, there's a, a, a close advisor for many, many years to Joe Biden. Uh, and now his name is escaping me and I'm looking for my tweet. Um, uh, Rafi, Rafidi, uh, passed away and we knew that he passed away, like right as this was starting to ramp up, but we didn't know what it was that he died from. And the, uh, autopsy came back. I guess they're doing autopsies now to figure out who's dying of what, uh, and an autopsy came back that showed that he tested virus, uh, positive for coronavirus. And that's, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty shocking. And, and, uh, you know, I have to wonder, and I think a lot of people have to wonder, you know, this is a close advisor to Joe Biden. He took ill right about the time that Joe Biden uh, went dark and we didn't see very much of him for a week. It was right at the beginning of that. And you have to wonder if there wasn't uh, um, social distancing at the very least going on there. I would hope so. I would hope that um, especially people who are older are taking the precautions that they need. And it, and it worries me, you know, people like people who are in politics are, it is their job to be in contact with the public uh, all the time. And they're in contact with the public when they're running for office, such as the way Bernie Sanders is and Joe Biden is. They're also in contact with, uh, with other lawmakers, uh, such as the way Bernie Sanders is in the Senate right now. You know, there is, there's no way to vote from home. There is no way to make law from home during this, uh, during this crisis. And that's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of, of knowing that, that we would one day need to do this. Uh, it, it's something that's been on the table for many years, and there's never been any movement on how to get, uh, how to manage the House and Senate, 
the Congress remotely should should that become an issue. So let's hope that that gets moved up into the uh, into the to do list for folks in the uh, for folks in the Senate at the very least. Uh, you know we've got Senator Rand Paul has tested positive. We have a lawmaker in Florida, Diaz Ballard, who has tested positive. There's, there is, of course, a chasm of difference between testing positive for coronavirus and dying of coronavirus. Uh, just because someone has tested positive does not mean that that's a death sentence. Uh, we expect people to come out of this just fine. Uh, and we will uh, be crossing our fingers and hoping for the best for for everyone. Uh, okay, I would like to share with you what else is on the show. So what else is on the show tonight is Janine Moloff, who's our wonderful uh Justice correspondent, she's been on the corruption and coronavirus beat, and she's got a report for us this week on, uh, it's not quite price gouging, it's corruption within the pharmaceutical development of treatments for coronavirus and this ties to Gilead Sciences. So I look forward to that. That's at the bottom of the second hour at 8.30. Uh, I think I'm gonna open the lines at 7.30. So if you feel like calling in, just look at the, uh, uh, where, if you're listening on the Blog Talk radio site, you can find the number there, but I'll go ahead and give it out. Uh, guest call in is 909. 265-9104. Call in and get that wonderful welcome from Blog Talk Radio's uh, um, greeter. And then press one. And you got to press one because press one puts you in the host's queue. Uh, it's a little secret and I don't know why they keep it a secret, but you got to press one. If you, um, and then I'll be able to see you on my screen and I'll be able to bring you in. There's a lot to talk about and, um, you know, just taking over for, for Rick, this has been a, a kind of a weird time to be taking over for a lot of reasons. And it's given me the opportunity to kind of assess where we've been uh, Progressive News Network has been broadcasting for nine years with pretty much the same format, two hours on Sunday evening. Uh, and um, I'm considering maybe changing some things up. You know, maybe we don't do two hours on Sunday. Maybe we do one hour on Sunday and one hour on Wednesday, something like that. You guys, give me some feedback. Let me know what you think. Let me know the way that you like to consume podcasts. Because I know the way that I consume podcasts is, you know, pretty much while I'm working or while I'm driving, I like to catch up on, you know, a couple of dozen of my good podcast buddies. And I'm a little bit behind on that lately because I'm working on my own podcast, which kind of sucks. I 
I really missed being able to open up Useful Idiots as soon as it dropped this week. Um, I, it, that's one of my favorite podcasts. That's Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi, Rolling Stone. They do fa- fantastic work. Another one that I really hope listeners to the show will listen to, will check out, is a show called Move Left Idiots. So it's the two idiots podcasts that that are at the top of my list. But I really like Move Left Idiots. It's it builds itself as a socialist talk show, and I find that the format. First of all, the the uh, two hosts are incredibly intelligent and super easy to listen to. They're very entertaining. And then the conversations that they have, the way that they delve into the issues, I think is, you know, some of the best non-professional podcasting out there. Like I kind of put, I kind of put Taibi and Halper in a semi-professional, you know, like, like they're, they're coming from Rolling Stone and they have that production team to help them out. And The Intercepted, you know, is another podcast that I listen to all the time, totally professional, amazing, you know, masterclass in how to do this. Uh, but production values and professionalism are not necessarily why people listen to podcasts. As a matter of fact, I like listening to the podcast often. Uh, the more homespun they are, the more kind of uh, um, bespoke. I think that's the word I'm looking for. The more bespoke they are. Uh, uh, we live in we live in strange and wonderful times. I remember when we first got internet radio, like way way back when people had Netscape browsers. And you could listen to radio stations in Eastern Europe and in Russia and in Japan. You could just like, like you could all of a sudden you had access to all of these different voices from all over the world. And I got a little bit obsessed with it. And I think what has happened is my enthusiasm for consuming international media and all different kinds of voices with regard to music has it's shifted. And now I seek out this, the, the same kind of diversity of voices only in podcasting. And I don't know, I just find it, I find it more, more interesting. And I hope you feel the same way because I think it's, it's one of the last ways that independent voices can be heard and, uh, uh, you know, it just gets harder and harder all the time for people to do this kind of work. YouTube is shutting people down. YouTube doesn't want people talking about coronavirus. Uh, you know, uh, that platform has been used for quite some time for people who are doing a hybrid podcast and uh, video production. Um I've been resisting doing that because I'm I'm just a really big fan of voice only. I think that when you listen to voices, it allows you to go about and do other things. You can cook dinner, you can drive your car, you can 
you know, be cleaning up the house. There's all kinds of things that you can do while you're listening to a podcast uh, that you can't do if you're sitting down watching and engaged in something on YouTube. And these are all things. These are all just thoughts floating around in my head. We're going to, in the next month or so, especially with all of this extra time, uh, extra Corona time, uh, we're going to try some new things and add some new dimensions to what we do here at Progressive News Network and experiment a little. Sunday show is never going to go away. Uh, it's all about adding value and it's all about doing more to uh, service the listeners because you guys are the reason why we're here. All right, enough of that. I've got, I've got political stories. I've got coronavirus stories. And we're going to get right to that. But first, uh, check out this uh, really weird um, piece of copyright-free music that I just found. the dragon this is tusk card music from the 70s uh, i have a huge collection of these it's called tusk card music it was uh, canned music that was used in television and uh and radio throughout uh this collection spans the 50s through the early 2000s i have never in my life seen so much weird crap uh in you know little 30 second to 2 minute clips just amazing so that was enter the dragon all right enter the dragon let's start off with with the political news this week and let's start start off with a real pickle that I think we're getting ready to have to deal with right here. Uh, there was a story that caught my attention today about an enthusiasm gap. There's an enthusiasm gap between Biden voters and Trump voters. And this really this story really rung my bell because as a Floridian, I've seen this exact same scenario play out with the governor's race over and over and over and over again. Okay. So what happened uh, during the two elections where Rick Scott was elected and then reelected was we put up these, you know, 
uh, neoliberal, you know, wishy-washy, you know, hard to distinguish from a Republican kind of Democrats, you know, Republican light, I think is what a lot of people say. And repeatedly, the autopsy showed that what was wrong was there was a lot of, of enthusiasm for the Tea Party candidate and for the uh, insurgent right-wing wacko. Lots of enthusiasm for them. And for the Democrats, you know, first they put up, I'll think of her name in a second. It's a woman who'd been a banker and she's all involved in New Leaders Council, which is just a um, giant hairy train wreck that we'll talk about at some other time. Uh, but then the second, it, for the re-election, they put up former Republican Governor Charlie Crist against um, Rick Scott. And again... And they did the autopsy. What they found is that voters couldn't distinguish between the two. Now, one way to talk about that is an enthusiasm gap. One way to talk about it is is that uh, your average voter, you know, not your politics obsessed, um, you know, person who follows me on Twitter kind of person, uh, they look at two candidates that are running for office, a Republican and a Democrat, and they see a former Republican or they see someone who uh, espouses Republican talking points and, and, and at the very least doesn't push up against or doesn't, you know, agitate against the Republican talking points. And what happens is voters just don't see a difference. And so one of the things that came out of the Charlie Crist election, the uh, when Charlie Crist lost to uh, to Rick Scott, was the people left the top of the ticket blank, and they voted they voted down ballot, and left the governor's race blank, which is just insane, just super insane. Uh, if anybody wants to try and say that. You know, oh, if you put the wrong candidate on at the top of the ticket, then that'll ruin all the down ballot tickets. And I've also seen that argument made the other way around where, oh, my gosh, if you put someone on down ticket, you know, for a, for a Senate seat or for a uh, high profile congressional seat that that, oh, my gosh, they could hurt someone further up the ticket. That just doesn't get borne out in the data. That doesn't get borne out in uh, in these autopsies when they're done. Uh, remember now, we have never done an autopsy on 2016 for the presidential election. But I think that most of us are, are pretty much aware of a lot of the problems that led to Hillary Clinton's loss to Donald Trump historic loss to, to Donald Trump. One of the things that was most uh, damaging to her was the enthusiasm gap that she had between Donald Trump. And so here I've got a news 
I've got a news. I've got a story from, if I can find it. Okay, here it is. ABC News did a story, came out today. Biden consolidates support, but trails badly in enthusiasm. Strong enthusiasm for Biden among those who back him over Trump is just 24%. So only 24% of people polled uh, had uh, high levels of enthusiasm for Joe Biden. Among Trump supporters, he has twice that amount, more than twice. 53% of Trump supporters are, are very... And that's a quote, very, this is the way that they uh, constructed the poll. You were either very enthusiastic, somewhat enthusiastic, or not enthusiastic at all. So the numbers are this. For Trump supporters, he has 53% very enthusiastic. He has 32% somewhat enthusiastic and 14% not enthusiastic at all. Uh, so, that, so that's a stair step. That looks like you're just walking down the stairs from 53 to 32 to 14. Now with Biden, there's only 24% who are very enthusiastic and a whopping 49% who are somewhat enthusiastic. And then there is more people who are not enthusiastic at all than who are very enthusiastic. This is a huge red flag for anybody who has you know, voted for Joe Biden or is supporting Joe Biden because electability. This is a big counterexample to that strategy. Because what happens is, you know, we haven't had any general election yet. We haven't had any campaigning between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We haven't seen Donald Trump go after Joe Biden. We haven't seen Joe Biden try to defend himself or complete a few sentences on his own uh, in, a, in a confrontational manner with anybody. I mean, the, uh, the uh, interviews that he's been giving that, that he's been gifted lately from um, from CNN. It looks like CNN particularly. It, it, they're just they're horrifying. They're absolutely horrifying. There is one here that I'm trying to find that I can play for you. That is a very good example. Yeah, here it is. This is Joe Biden and, and Nicole Wallace. It's such a cringe moment. Let me let me play this. China, he's making sure, and now he's being soft on his xenophobia in the past. So I just I just can't trigger the guy. It's like it's, I don't know. It's like watching a yo-yo. I shouldn't have said it that way. It's like watching. It feels that way. I want to ask. I want to. <laughs> it's okay. I... That's so painful. I mean, first of all, she's acting like a 
public relations professional who is being paid by his team to interview him. She's not acting as a, a, an independent journalist who is trying to interview a candidate for president and bring out information that would be important to her audience. That is the last thing from her mind. Now, here's a little tongue bath that and that's why, Anderson example, Cooper calling out the retired medical personnel from the United States military who are raising their hands saying, we'll go in and help. The University of Pennsylvania, where I taught, just to, where they graduated all their med students early so they could now go in and help in hospitals now. There's an urgent. So in this clip, in this clip, Joe Biden lies to Anderson Cooper and says that he taught at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And this was a lie that he told earlier on MSNBC about a week, a little less than a week, maybe three days ago, and had been called out. And there was like all of this uh, political, you know, quick hits, you know, talking about it. And he brings it up again. It's almost as if, and you know, this this goes to the Joe Biden uh, is in cognitive decline scenario. Uh, it, it, it speaks to the point that he's not able to maintain a narrative, a coherent narrative in his head of his own history. He's not able to articulate it in all of these interviews he's been giving. You know, these, these, these uh, tongue baths by uh, uh, corporate media. He spent a good amount of time starting to answer a question, losing his place, trailing off and saying, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'll just stop right there. And we saw him do that quite a bit during the, uh, during the debates. We saw him do that during the debates where he gives up, he, he, uh, he uh, relinquishes his time, he doesn't use his full time, and that is not somebody who is on the top of their game. This is not somebody who is, you know, sharp as a tack. If you're sharp as a tack, you are going to take all of your time and you are going to fight for a little more time because you got a little more to say. That's the way that works. If you're trailing off and you kind of lose your train of thought, and you and and you give your time back because you didn't really need it. That's pretty weak, you know. Now Democrats are really fond of uh, demanding, just demanding that people get in line. They've decided, even though uh, you know Bernie won the first three states, even though he uh, he has held his own, you know. <laughs> blew people out of the water in in the beginning. He didn't get any media bump out of that. Nobody covered it. Then he goes on and he keeps holding his own, still doesn't get any coverage. What they do cover is, you know, after Super Tuesday, with hardly any of the votes counted in California, the, count, the votes not counted in a lot of states. We still have a lot of outstanding votes. And you have people uh, in the media who are just pushing right ahead and saying, oh, well, it's time to 
it's time for Bernie Sanders to drop out, which is just uh, which is just insane. So back to this enthusiasm gap. There's a couple of really interesting stats in here. Uh, it's not hard to see how people would be less enthusiastic for Joe Biden, given the kind of coverage that that he's provided lately, the, these interviews that he's given, the fact that he disappeared for a full week while we were uh, going into lockdown for this pandemic. Uh, he was just absolutely missing in, in action. Uh, with the death of his closest advisor that actually, you know, raised a lot of eyebrows. A lot of people were worried that something had happened to Joe Biden. Then when he finally emerged, he was, his voice was weak. His skin looked terrible. He could barely hold, hold his own. He keeps giving this same, he's, he's sitting in the same room for like four days. He was wearing the same set of clothes. And it's this blue striped shirt and the same blue jacket. And uh, I argued on Twitter that it looked to me like he was standing, he was in front of a um, green screen. I think that the, uh, I think there's plenty of artifacts within the, um, within the photography that argues for that. There's a difference in proportionality. Uh, from the subject to the background, there's a difference in the saturation and the contrast and the way that the photography works from your subject to your background. If you're shooting through one lens, if you've got one lens that is photographing your subject and your background, they should have the same, the subject in the background should have the same kind of treatment with regard to saturation and contrast and exposure and so on and so forth. Uh, all things else being equal with regard to lighting. Uh, and I doubt they're using gels um, to change the color. So here's, here's going back to the enthusiasm gap. Indeed, strong enthusiasm for Biden among his supporters is just at 48 or 24%. It's the lowest on record for a Democratic presidential candidate in 20 years of ABC Washington Post polls. More than twice as many of Trump's supporters are highly enthusiastic about him, uh, giving us putting his support at 53%. But um, check this out. Here it is. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton found herself in largely the same position four years ago. She, too, had a slim lead among Democrats for the nomination and ran essentially evenly with Trump amongst registered voters. What she lagged in, though, was enthusiasm. Her, Her enthusiasm what we call here uh, as very enthusiastic, Biden's is 24%. Her high levels of enthusiasm were at 32% for very enthusiastic. Biden is eight points below that. People are far less enthusiastic about Joe Biden than they were about 
Hillary Clinton, who lost in 2016. Again, your electability argument is failing here. This is, this is not what electability looks like. Really, really good piece in the week this week. Um, if you don't read the week, it's a, um, it's a liberal weekly news magazine with editors in um, the United Kingdom and the United States. This piece is Ryan, written by Ryan Cooper, who is a national correspondent for theweek.com. His work appears in the Washington Monthly, the New Republic, and the Washington Post. Ryan Cooper, just so you know, this isn't like an article from Breitbart or you know, the blaze or any of those weirdo um, verticals that, that come off of the, the, the Bannon, the Bannon funding machine. This is, this is totally legit. And this article uh, looks like it was published either yesterday or today. Joe Biden is the worst imaginable challenger to Trump right now. Really, really solidly uh, uh, piece right here. For anyone plugged in to the news fire hose about the coronavirus pandemic, it has been extremely bizarre to watch President Trump's approval rating. He has botched the crisis beyond belief. The United States is now has the biggest outbreak of coronavirus in the world. He his ongoing failures to secure stockpiles of medical supplies. Uh, doctors and nurses reusing protective gear over and over, as Rick mentioned in his uh, letter from the road. Some, some of our frontline health providers have already caught the virus and died. There was a couple of doctors who did a video uh, showing how you could reuse uh, plastic garbage bags to create pr protective clothing. One of, one of those uh, men died. It's very, very freaking sad. Um, and Brian Cooper points out, despite all this, Trump's approval rating keeps going up. Poll averages show a marked bump in favorable ratings. A recent Washington Post ABC poll has him above, uh, above water, and Gallup has him at a 60, 60, 60% approval of his handling of the situation. Brian Cooper says then, this is what happens when the Democratic Party de facto led by, at this point, by its presumptive presidential nominee, Joe Biden, refuses to make the case that Trump is in fact responsible for the severity of the disaster. Now we've seen this over and over. If you're following this, this news on Twitter, if you've been following this on social media at all, you have, I'm sure you have seen how the Democratic Party is loath to point out what Trump is doing wrong. They think that it's just, you know, you just can't go up against the coronavirus. It's, it's just, it, it, it would be unwise. It would be untoward. I don't know. Um, at any rate, they're refusing to make the case that, that Trump has, has messed this up. Uh, you know, 
I've been telling people for quite some time that what we're seeing right here is Donald Trump is being put on a war footing with coronavirus the way that Bush Jr., um, George W. Bush, was put on a war footing with 9-11. 9-11 was a huge failure on his part. He went to the site of the World Trade Center and stood upon the rubble, which was a symbol of his failure, and rallied the troops around him. You know, said, ah, this is, this is our moment, and we're going to go. And, and, and people went with it, you know. Uh, they went with it so far that we went to war in Iraq, which made no sense at all, based on entirely on lies. So it should be of concern to people who are interested in civil liberties and interested in uh, the health of our democracy. We need to keep an eye on the way that coronavirus is impacting civil liberties and the way that it could continue to impact them going forward. It's fine to address this while we're in the midst of a pandemic. And we're going to talk about how long we're going to be in this pandemic in a little while. But we don't want another Patriot Act to come out of coronavirus. Yeah. Um, so that would that would not be a good outcome. Okay. Back to why Joe Biden is the worst imaginable challenger to Trump right now. A Pew poll, for instance, found that Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters nearly doubled their approval of Trump over the last few weeks from 7% to 12%. Now, those aren't huge numbers, but that is a doubling. That means whenever you see a number double like that, that's when you got to start paying attention. Because that number could double again next week. And 24% of uh, uh, Democratic-leaning voters could say, ah, yeah, maybe he's doing fine. I don't know. You know, I, I, I can't look. It's too painful. Um, moving down. Indeed, Biden has barely been doing anything. As the outbreak became a a full-blown crisis, Biden disappeared for almost an entire week. His campaign said it was trying to figure out how to do video live streams, something any 12-year-old could set up in five minutes. Uh, When Biden finally did appear, he gave some scripted addresses that had technical follow-ups you know, where, where he was uh, trying to get the cue card to go and decided not to read the cue card. And, it was just, it was just, and then he did these softball interviews where he still occasionally trailed off mid-sentence. Um, this article is actually very funny because of the way that Ryan Cooper peppers it with uh, hyperlinks to the actual um, pieces that, that he's citing, like uh, trailed off mid-sentence is actually highlighted as a hyperlink. Um, he makes a really good point here, and I think he's absolutely right. He says, people crave leadership during times of crisis as evidenced by a sudden surge of positive sentiment towards New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who seriously mishandled the initial crisis response and is still trying to cut Medicaid 
but has been giving reassuring daily press conferences where he seems like he's on top of the situation. Now, the writer, Ryan Cooper, contrasts that with uh, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee, who did a much better job. You can compare the numbers in New York to those in Washington State with regard to the uh, um, rate of infection and the way that the curve was bent. Um, but Inslee has gotten comparatively little attention precisely because there are a lot few cases and deaths and because there are many fewer reporters in Seattle than New York City. See how that works? So you can be doing a much better job. You can be much better at saving lives and much better at getting resources to our uh, um, first responders or our frontline responders in emergency rooms and in ICUs. And you're not going to hear of it precisely because they're doing a good job. Or you're not going to hear of it because they're not in a media market that is just crawling with reporters looking for an easy story to file. He continues, Biden's strategy appears to be to coast to the presidency in basically, basically the same way he coasted to the nomination. Keep public appearances and therefore embarrassing verbal flubs to a minimum and rely on Trump's disastrous governance to do all the work for him. But this is a horribly risky strategy. And this is the this is the nut. This is this is what he's after right here. Biden is already a candidate whose awful record will make it harder to attack Trump on trade, protecting Social Security and Medicare, corruption, mental fitness, and his treatment of women, which we're going to talk about in a second. Indeed, just Recently, a former Biden staffer came forward with an allegation that he had sexually assaulted her 26 years ago. This is sexual assault. This is not sexual harassment. This isn't getting handsy. This isn't hair smelling. This is a sexual assault. This is serious freaking business. And I got to tell you something. All of the all the Biden stands that I've been seeing out there in social media land uh, who are uh, uh, attacking Tara Reid, who has, has trying to been coming forward with the story for, uh, for more than a year. Her and Lucy Flores and six others came out in um, the spring of 2019 to try and bring, uh, bring awareness to this. And the reason why people have been trying to bring a, awareness to this, to Joe Biden's problem with sexual assault, is that that takes off the table. That makes him weaker against Trump. You can't put him up against Trump and say, oh, he's better. He's not better on sexual assault. He's 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 not well. I mean, like just in sheer numbers, yeah. And maybe he's a nicer guy after the fact or something. But you know, you lose that high ground. You don't get any high ground with that. You don't get any high ground with corruption. Corporate media totally buried the Barisma Hunter Biden 
business, and they barely talked about the uh, the uh, uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden taking Hunter Biden to China for a multi-million dollar deal on Air Force Two. You know, nobody's talked about that. You better dang well believe that Donald Trump is going to talk about that, and you got to dang well believe that all the surrogates are going to talk about that. They're going to talk about that till the cows come out. And the fact that you don't want to hear it now, well, that's just too dang bad. Yeah, that just makes the candidate weaker. Um, mental fitness. Remember when everyone was trying to get rid of Donald Trump with 21st or 25th Amendment, you know, trying to get him out of office because there's something, there's a screw loose or something wrong with them? Totally lose that with Joe Biden, man. You can't put up you can't put up somebody who is in steep cognitive decline against somebody who is, uh, definitely has narcissistic personality disorder and some other uh, mental health issues. But he's definitely sharper than Biden. I mean, anybody, anybody can see that. Uh, treatment of women, protecting Social Security and Medicare. You know, Joe Biden, again, I wanted to cut these programs not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, he said. That's how much he wanted to cut Social Security and Medicare and uh, and trade, NAFTA. Yeah. So all of these issues on which Donald Trump was elected because people wanted a change with regard to cha- to trade and with regard to protecting Social Security and Medicare, we won't be able to form a contrast with, with Biden. And that's where this enthusiasm gap is. Because remember what I said when we started talking about this. In Florida, the reason why people left the governor's race blank when they were contacted later in follow-up conversations, they said there was no discernible difference between the Republican and the Democrat. They couldn't discern a difference. Now, what happens to people when they can't discern a difference between two candidates is they generally go with the incumbent, you know, because it's, you know, like, why trade horses mid-race or whatever? Um We are going to look at this. We got a caller. Uh, so I've just gone through my political stuff, and we are going to turn to uh, some some more Biden material having to do with Tara Reid. I want to play you guys a, a, a clip of Tara Reid in her own words. And I want to give you a little bit more information on what's going on in the primaries. But let's see what this, uh, let's see what's going on with this caller. Hello, caller, 321, Space Coast. What's up? Oh, hi there. Longtime listener. You're doing a great job as usual. Thank you. So what has been on your radar this week? Is there something that you are um, calling in particular to chat about? Well, I think I, all the all the points you've raised have been good. Uh, I, I don't know what the 
I am really concerned about this grim desperation of uh, protecting Biden's imaginary insurmountable delegate lead. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Bernie Sanders person, but part of that calculus is that I don't see how Biden can beat Trump. I mean, my goodness. And, and, and there was a great article that you pointed out. He's not doing anything. He's not around. And saying things like we can't figure out how to get online to communicate is not helpful. He looks incompetent. Uh, and, and every time he talks, he sounds less together. I mean, have you seen the clips out there? He's He's – He's trying to he tries to throw uh, to people who aren't there. Uh, he stumbles over all kinds of words. I forget what the what the last thing was that he tried to he tried to throw out another you know old bromide or whatever and blew that too you know just like the uh, Declaration of Independence. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think the article <laughs> I think the article makes a good point that. Sitting back and if you look at what's what's going on with Trump's numbers, and and I think you you know you briefly touched on rally around the flag, uh, things are dire. Things are going to probably be pretty dire uh, for a while. Uh, hopefully, we're all pulling out of this. The question is, you know, how much damage. But regardless, you know that factor, Trump's going to be standing there crowing that you know whenever it does ease up, whenever there is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, that he's the guy that brought us there, and a lot of us will know better. Uh, but that's not gonna that's not gonna help. And Biden's made these express comments that he's not gonna criticize. He's not gonna he's not gonna point out that you know Trump paying favoritism and saying he's not gonna give respirators to anyone or ventilators to anyone who's not sufficiently appreciative. I mean, this guy's standing in front of the country and saying, you know, you better compliment me. Or I'm going to let the citizens of your state die. And I realize the bar has been lowered a lot in the last four years. But for Biden to sit back and mumble platitudes, and that's all he does. I don't know who's comforted by that. I've seen a whole bunch of stuff on social media about I want someone boring. You know, I I want something, you know, and and I, I guess I can sort of understand the craving for normal times, but the idea that the idea that that someone who's basically doing nothing and trying just not to make any mistakes uh, and, and looking incompetent when he does stick his head above the ground is going to generate the enthusiasm necessary to beat uh, the Trump supporters who are all in. There's no shaking them. And it, it, and what I saw today uh, uh, in the, the polls and you referenced this was that supposedly Democratic-leaning voters – are giving Trump the thumbs up because I don't know why, because it's a crisis and he's there, you know, and there is that effect. There is a rally around the flag effect and hiding. This was Clinton's strategy, by the way, who I think was a much, much stronger candidate than Biden, far smarter uh, on either of their best days, uh, not suffering from, you know, whether it's childhood stutter or I don't believe that or confusion. Um, She was a strong, well-spoken you know, I, I didn't think she had a whole lot of platform, but she would get out there and elucidate a few things. He's just popping up every now and then with just vague, vague platitudes. And the idea that you can hide like that and do virtually nothing and coast to a win on the idea that, again, this was Hillary's strategy. It's the idea that Trump is so unacceptable and so toxic 
that that will motivate people to come out and vote and topple him is that we're cruising for uh, another mistake. And I, I shudder to think what a second Trump term where he's kind of, kind of figured out how to get his paws on the levers of real power in Washington, I shudder to think what that would look like. And uh, th- that article you cited is absolutely correct. Uh, Biden's doing nothing to dispense with that. And I'm, I'm also really uh, – I, I know you're going to get into it in a minute, so we'll get off your phone line and let you talk. But uh, the Tara Reid thing, if anyone has listened to her story, it's impossible to hear her. And uh, regardless of your predilections or people's positions on uh, you know, uh, believing sexual assault survivors, it's impossible to listen to her and discount her story or feel that she's not telling the truth. It's, it's, she, she's – She's reliving it as she says it, and it's uh, it's so in line, unfortunately, with other little signs that we've seen from Biden's character. And to see all the all the talking heads and uh, mainstream news sources either ignore this, or now they're starting to poke their little heads up uh, and say, "Well, you know, we don't like the source of the reporting. We don't like the Intercept or Katie Halper and this and that, and you know, all the old all the old." horrible sexist crap about you know you waited too long which she didn't she tried uh it's very credible it's completely in line with other stuff we've seen from biden and when we saw a caption we saw an attempt to catch and kill her story from the times up folks you know, they, they, they. Oh, that's a good way to, yeah, that's a way to frame it, I guess. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, just, just like, uh, what's his name? We wrote the book, uh, the, uh, on the one scene. Ronan Farrow. Ronan right. Yeah. Right. And so, so the, the strategy that they used over and over again was to say, oh, yeah, we've got it. We want your story. We're going to do something on it. And they catch it and then they kill it. You know, then they make sure that it never sees the light of day. And that's the way that the Time's Up people treated Tara Reid. She went to them early this year. They promised her that that, uh, that at first, you know, that everything was running smooth. And this echoes the Ronan Farrow stuff so much to me. So everything was going smooth. People were like, oh, this this is a very important story. This is a powerful person. This is impactful. And as soon as it got run up all the way through the organization, to the top, we find out that people at the top involved in Time's Up are also involved at the top of the Biden campaign, the SKD Knickerbocker uh, people. Isn't it Biden's, it's Biden's PR people actually run mm-hmm. uh, the Time's mm-hmm. Up situation. And the, there was, uh, I saw something where their, their PR expenditures, um, went up by a factor of 10 uh, since uh, January or something like that to that outfit, which makes you wonder, you know, what all is going on. And yeah, I, I commend that catch and kill book to people because you're right. This does follow the same, the same template, which is these overlapping circles of power. You know, when Ronan Farrow started poking around uh, this information about Weinstein was out there, uh, but he immediately got, I mean, phone calls were made from Clinton's people. You know, well, he's a friend of ours, so we're not happy about this. These people, you know, in these positions know each other. They spend money uh, with each other. And it's kind of the grossest kind of betrayal 
Uh, but there was so much of it in that story that you, you were right. The National Enquirer apparently like made a, a whole, they had a basically division <laughs> dedicated to uh, paying people money to, to uh, get the rights to their story. So it would never see the light of day. And this kind of thing, I wonder how long it sounds like they dragged her out and shined her on long enough, you know, to, you know, to, to try to delay or kill it. And now it's coming out like, well, we don't hear this coming. You know, the, the pushback is we don't hear this coming from establishment people. And it's so sickening because the reason you don't hear it coming from establishment people is because those establishments, the major news media, the major political parties don't care. They don't really care about this stuff. They're just weapons in their hands when it's convenient and this story is as credible and as ugly and as damning as uh, Blasey Ford's or anyone else who came forward that uh, many of us, you know, took seriously and were appalled when uh, their words weren't heeded. And to, to see it so blatantly ignored and then to see the pushback, which is coming, which is the, the same old crap. You know, we don't like the sources of it. And blah, blah, blah. Essentially, we choose not to believe this. I saw a couple of things floating on social media today uh, from a blue check uh, women, no, no less, saying, well, so what if Joe's a rapist? Uh, I like his policies better, you know, or theoretically, if he's a rapist, you know, if now we're last election uh, cycle for the president, we were like, you know, the lesser of two evils. Now we're we've lowered the bar all the way down to the lesser of two rapists. I mean, it's it's wow. Uh, it's well, really you know, bleak is, and and really ugly. It is, and you know what? This is just a really good time. Let's let's go ahead and play this clip. I've got a, an excerpt from Katie Halper's interview with Tara Reid, and the um, setup for this is you know people need to know that she's talking about a sexual assault, so you know. Trigger warning. It, 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 trigger warning. If that's and, and and this stuff can be very triggering. Uh, she was one of eight women who came forward in the spring of 2019 in solidarity with Nevada politician Lucy Flores, uh, who also alleged sexual harassment by Joe Biden. This goes way beyond. So I'm going to go ahead and start this. Caller, you're free to stay on. Or um, uh, uh, fall off, whatever you think. But but I'd love if you stayed on to respond to this. Six and this opens with Tara describing a superior calling her into her office to ask her to do an errand. So she says that she called me in and said, I want you to take this to Joe. He wants it. He wants you to bring it. Hurry. And I said, okay. And it was a gym bag. She said, you know, take the gym bag. She called it athletic bag. And, you know, she said he was down towards the Capitol and he'll meet you. And so I went down and I was heading down towards there. And he was at first talking to someone. I could see him at a different distance and then they went away. And then um, we were in like the side, it, it was like the side area. And um, he just said, hey, come here, Tara. And then I, I handed him the thing and he greeted me. He remembered my name. And then... It, we were alone, and it was the strangest thing. There was no, like, exchange, really. He just had me up against the wall. And um, I was wearing, like, a skirt and 
you know, business skirt, but I wasn't wearing stockings. It was kind of a hot day that day. And I was wearing heels. And I remember my legs had been hurting from the marble, you know, of the Capitol, mm-hmm. like walk. And I, so I remember that kind of stuff. I remember like I was wearing a blouse and he just had me up against the wall and the wall was cold. And I remember he, it happened all at once. The gym bag, I don't know where it went. I handed it to him, it was gone. And then his hands were on me and underneath my clothes. And um, yeah, and then he went, oh, he went down my skirt, but then up inside it. And he uh, penetrated me with his fingers, whatever. And um, I, uh, he was kissing me at the same time and he was saying something to me. He said several things and I can't remember everything he said. I remember a couple of things. I remember him saying first, like as he was doing it, do you want to go somewhere else? And then him saying to me, when I pulled away, he um, got finished doing what he was doing. And I kind of was pulled back. And he said, he said, come on, man. I heard you liked me. Mm-hmm. And it's that phrase stayed with me because I kept thinking what I might have said. And I can't remember exactly if he said I thought or if I heard. But it, it's like he implied like that I had done this. Like, I don't know. And for me, it was like every, everything shattered in that moment, because I knew, like, we were alone, it was over, right, he wasn't trying to do anything more, but it's, I looked up to him, he was like my father's age, he was this champion of women's rights in my eyes, and I couldn't believe it was happening, it didn't, it seemed surreal, and I I just, I knew, I, I just felt sick, because he, when he pulled back, he looked annoyed, and he said, um, something else to me that I I don't want to say. And then he said, I must've looked shocked and he grabbed me by the shoulders. I don't know how I looked, but I must've looked something because he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, you're okay. You're fine. You're okay. You're fine. And then he walked away and he went on with his day. And what I remember next is being in the Russell building, like where the big windows are and the stairs by myself and my body, I was shaking everywhere because and it was cold all of a sudden. And I was, I don't know, I felt like I was shaking just everywhere. And I was trying to grasp what had just happened and what I should do or what I should say. But I knew it was bad because he was so angry. Like when he left, like I could feel, you know, how when you know someone's angry, they mm-hmm. don't necessarily say anything. Like he smiles when he's angry and you can just feel it emanating from him. Like, do you want to share that thing that you said you don't, like you said, like, I, I don't want to say what. He said that thing he said to you. Um, yeah, I can. I guess I could. I mean, you you don't have to. It's okay. It's just um, it's almost like giving a weapon to them. How so? Well, it's like I don't want them to know how much it hurt. I don't, mm. you know, I, mean? I don't want him to know when they. I don't know. That, yeah, like that I, you remembered it. Yeah, just just the. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I can say it. Um, yeah, there was something he said that I didn't want to say, and I didn't want to say it because it's the thing that stays in my head mm. over and over, like, like, and um, it's the thing that <clears throat> kind of stayed with me over the years. But he said um, when he had me against the wall after he had done, after I pulled away, and he had said, "Hey, you know, come on, heard you liked me." And I um, knew he was angry 
right after he took his finger. He just like pointed at me and he said, you're nothing to me. And I, he just looked at me and he goes, you're nothing, nothing. And then I must have reacted. And I think he only said it twice. I said, but I, but I just heard the word nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and I must have reacted because that's when he took me by the shoulders and he said, you know, you're okay. You're fine. You're okay. But then afterwards, like it kept replaying in my head. I'm like last April when all that stuff came out, <clears throat> I got really, really sad about it. And the thing that I remember most, almost more than the assault itself was just being told I was nothing. And he was right. That's how people treated me. Mm. That's how people treated me. And I have no platform. I am no one. And to him, I'm nothing. So, yeah. Um. So if people want to know why women don't come forward, that's a good example of why. That is so hard to listen to. It's so hard to hear. And I want to pull out just a few things that that leap out to me in her testimony there. Uh, this is clearly somebody who is still experiencing complex, close traumatic stress syndrome. And you heard her herself say that she felt dissociative, that she couldn't remember certain uh, 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 details of the day, and that her attention came to these, to came to focus on certain aspects, and to the exclusion of of other aspects. Uh, these kind of this this kind of abuse leaves people scarred for the rest of their life. It's not just in in an impact to your career which absolutely happened to her. Uh, You know, she did the right thing. She uh, spurned his advance, you know, because, I mean, that's the right thing to do for somebody in power because you don't want to be the person who gets them in trouble, right? You don't want to be, you know, like, like, look, you don't need to be doing this, buddy. (laughs) And, And that's the right thing to do. But she was punished for that, you know, because then, because she didn't accept his advance, then she wasn't trusted within the staffers within the office and was pushed out and eventually pushed out from her career trajectory. But I think what is more important, what I hear in that testimony is I hear somebody who is uh, still emotionally dysregulated with regard to this. I hear somebody who still has issues with fragmentation, with self-concept, where they're, you know, shame. The way that she talks about uh, focusing on that one thing, he said that you are nothing. You are nothing to me. And I'll tell you what, who isn't an intern or a young staffer on Capitol Hill and isn't keenly aware that they are nothing, you know? You're you're barely holding on there, and if you're in the Democratic Party, you're you're probably not getting paid. Uh, she's still dealing with, with with issues of shame, and these are just the things that I hear in her voice. Uh, cognition, 
difficulty regulating attention and executive functions such as planning judgment uh, and self-monitoring. The, uh, the, the way that you integrate new information into into your worldview. These are executive functions. These are the kinds of things that complex post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome, CPTSD goes after these things. So I wanted to just get that psychological piece out there. But um, caller Space Coast, uh, what, what what are your thoughts on what you heard there? Wow, I can't cover the psychological uh, impact as well as you did uh, are not as studied, but I, I, my reaction to hearing this is just heartbreaking. And, you know, uh, the idea that the idea that this is going to be subjected from our side, quote unquote, you know, if they ever deign to speak of it, you know, in the same way we saw, you know, uh, people going after Dr. Plazy Ford, um, you can't listen to that and, and uh, dismiss it. Um, this is clearly a person, like you said, is in pain and, and, and relevance it's always relevant, but in, in the context where we're trying to pick a leader, you know, what we're seeing is that Joe Biden is another malignant narcissist. This is another dangerous person. And, I, you know, when he first got in this race, I thought he'd be bounced. He's a, what, a two-time nominee loser, and he didn't get bounced just for, you know, for soft numbers. He got bounced because he got caught in other lies and, and deceptive, amoral behavior, nothing that rises to this level. But he plagiarized a couple of his speeches. He went on a, there was a whole big of him bragging about himself. Sound familiar? Where he said he was in the top half of his class and he got three degrees and he was the leading political science student. Just lies. And he got caught doing that in the 80s and it torpedoed him. Just that, just copying speeches, and I forget, I think he lost two different races where he had to scuttle away because he got caught being, you know, this sort of uh, bragging, self-centered liar. Mm-hmm. And that is this, this dangerous personality type that we are seeing in the White House today, and maybe this guy is not as slick and is more, you know, maybe Trump is more overt and, and more brazenly ugly about those tendencies, but this is the same. We've got to stop electing men who feel entitled to lie about things and damage people for their own benefit. And, it, you know, if you think that somehow that that's not relevant, you know, for a leader, for someone who's going to have lives in his hands, if you think that this is something that, you know, was a criminal act when it occurred and it didn't get punished, so what are we to do? You know, the idea that we're going to put someone in or the idea that he is uh, uh, changed. I mean, that kind of stuff, all of those things, lying about your accomplishments and, and dismissing other human beings as uh, unimportant and, you know, uh, you know, an object that you can utilize uh, at your at your pleasure. If you don't see something wrong with that personality type being in charge, I, I don't know what. And I don't know what difference there is between the parties if we're just going to put up another one of those whose style we find less abhorrent. You know, and this is, this is what we heard from the Clinton campaign. 
four years ago. Uh, not that she was accused of anything on that level. Um, but the idea was, well, this other guy is so bad, nothing else matters. And now we're hearing, well, the thing that he has done is so bad, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters doesn't cut it. You know, the, the not being as bad as, not being as much of a sexual assaulter as does not cut it. And the idea that you're going to get people to come out in numbers to vote, you know, the people that support Trump are going to support him no matter what. Mm-hmm. Those votes are rock solid. And they're going to vote. You do have to convince people. You do have to motivate people that if you put this other person in office, this is something better. This is an improvement. That's the way people felt about Obama, however you feel about the way this politics ultimately ended up. That was what motivated, you know, that sea change, at least in voting patterns. And the idea that, that people are going to come out in droves to vote for this man who can't put a sentence together. Uh, who has lied all his life and has shown us again and again that he's a dumber version of the other malignant narcissists that, that, that have run things into the ground and, and put us, you know, uh, laid the groundwork for a lot of this ugliness that we're seeing today, a lot of this unpreparedness. This is the guy who rewrote the bankruptcy law so the credit card companies could squeeze a few more dollars out of people who were broke. That's all it did. The idea that you're going to motivate, the idea that we're going to motivate people to vote for that, and it's really the fault. This is what we're going to hear. It's the fault of people pointing that out. You can't. You can't. You can't. We're already hearing that. Too important. We're already hearing that. It's ludicrous. And And, and here's the thing. Shaming thing. Here's the thing. There is still a primary going on. There is not that much. difference between where uh, Sanders is and where Biden is with regard to the delegate count. There's still outstanding ballots to be counted from from the races that we've already had, and we have a whole nother other set of races. Now, people are starting to lose their minds with regard to voting. Uh, as you know, uh, Space Coast, Florida caller, uh, Florida held its primary amidst the pandemic nine days. Our primary was on March 17th, and nine days earlier in Orlando, they canceled a town hall with Biden and Bernie Sanders because it was supposedly too dangerous for party elites to to sit in the same room together. And uh, you have uh, now two poll workers that we know of have tested positive for um, COVID-19 since since the primary. And that's just in Florida. So at the time that the, that the primaries happened, you know, there was Illinois, Florida, Arizona had their primary on March 17th. Ohio postponed until I think it's the end of May. Now, let me give you just a sense of where we were on March 17. Uh, many states had already declared a state of emergency, shutting down schools, restaurants, and public areas to slow the spread of the virus. Like I said, uh, nine days prior, they had postponed a forum in Orlando because it was supposedly too dangerous for people to be in a room together. Um, And in terms of declaring a state of emergency, 
Florida declared a state of emergency on March 11, six days prior to the primary. Illinois declared a state of emergency on March 9, which is eight days prior. And Arizona declared their state of emergency on March 13. So amid all of that and amid the uh, CDC issuing guidance on March 15 against gatherings of larger than 50 people and public health warnings, urging caution, even for small gatherings, you had people smashing into these voting places and then finding out that, that they're that they're at, there wasn't actually the material to vote there. You, people, uh, 85, what was it, 85 judges didn't show up in, um, uh, in an important um, county in Illinois, so they weren't able to count votes. It was a hot mess. Now, what that did, and I've mentioned this to my listeners before, I have an uh, autoimmune situation, so I'm at high risk. I can't, I can't go to the pharmacy. I can't go to the store. I can't do anything because if there is something out there, I'm going to catch it, and then my body is going to overreact to it. Um, that's, that's just the way that – now, I voted by mail, but anybody else with a uh, – uh, with an autoimmune situation like, like what I have. So that would be like lupus or uh, Hashimoto's is, is another one. People who have Lyme disease have a similar uh, set of, of uh, immunity problems, uh, mast cell activation syndrome, fibromyalgia even uh, can lead to this kind of autoimmune situation. You can, you can behave. Your body can still behave with this overreacting uh, to, to a virus where you get a cytokine storm that's way more uh, vicious than a normal person would get because your body is doing that autoimmune thing. It's, it's overreacting. And that's how people are, are, are dying of corona is their body is overreacting. Their body is creating all of this uh, um, reaction in your respiratory tract. That's, that's your body trying to fight it off. That's your immune reaction. So people who are aware of these problems are not going to be able to vote. That's going to suppress the vote. And then the people who did show up to vote uh, we're, we're at risk for infection. And that's just absolutely, in my opinion, that's, that's horrific. And now we're finding that the DNC, so the DNC has threatened uh, 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 the states who are postponing, they've threatened them with removing half of their delegates. And we just found out yesterday the day before, that Governor Cuomo has postponed New York until the end of June, which is way past the drop dead date that the DNC has, has put down to finish the primaries. They still think that they're going to have a convention at the end of June. Now, New York is super important because it's one of the states with the most delegates that's left to vote. And right now, uh, it is 
stop looking for the polling. Right now, New York is one of Bernie Sanders's best uh, states. So there's like, what is it, 274 delegates up for grabs in New York. They have the most delegates. According to polls, Bernie Sanders is ahead by 12 points. We've got Bernie Sanders at 56%, Donald Trump at 38%. The last poll taken in New York has Bernie Sanders beating Joe Biden by a large percent. The DNC has suggested they will reduce the number of delegates for states who hold primaries after June 9. New York has the most delegates left. So I, I think, I don't know, I'm going to just go out on a limb. I'm just going to speculate, caller. I think that that's intentional. What do you think? Yeah, I saw that too. And uh, I can certainly see uh, friendly communications between the Cuomo administration and DNC officials. I mean, you remember in 2016, there was a, a, a huge scandal about vote purging in, uh, in Brooklyn-centric uh, districts where uh, Bernie was strong. Of course, Hillary was a New Yorker, theoretically, at that time, but he was still stronger than her there. Uh, I can I can totally see a marriage of convenience where Cuomo says, well, I can, you know, I can look good by uh, delaying the primary, which he certainly should do. I, what they really should do is let people vote by mail. Uh, Floridians, it's easy to do. If you haven't signed up, vote by mail. I did that in the primary. I'll be doing it in the presidential election. Um, I don't know why we couldn't have set up a, you know, a national vote by mail system or make that a requirement during these times. Instead, we're left with this mess that you've just described, but it certainly sounds like a marriage of convenience where Cuomo is uh, maybe rightfully delaying the primary since they can't get together on vote by mail. And the democratic party is fine with that because the result is lessening the impact of a, a, another challenge to Biden's hundred and whatever delegate lead, which they are very, very frantic to establish as insurmountable. They want, they want that word. I've seen that floated already out in the, you know, in the MSNBC and other CNC friendly uh, cable pundit world. They very much want to, it's the narrative. They very much want to Didn't have you, that narrative. Go ahead. Wasn't there, wasn't there something that Rachel Maddow said about, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I saw this, I think I saw this on you were touting uh, no you were touting move left idiots useful idiots the Rolling Stone podcast with uh, Matt Taibbi and Katie Halper uh, also is about uh, has idiots in the title and that's, a, that's another great uh, kind of uh, progressive uh, podcast to listen to and they pull clips and they pulled a clip of Rachel Maddow and I think she was on the Brian Williams show because she was talking to Brian Williams his eleven o'clock show. And she floated the hypothetical, you know, and uh, Maddow's very smart. She's a PhD in uh, political science or something like that, Rhodes Scholar. And she floats out this uh, very sort of backhanded hypothetical about, well, if so, if, you know, if one of the Democratic candidates should, should accumulate a, a hypothetical insurmountable lead, wouldn't it be irresponsible in terms of health and human safety for that other candidate to stay in uh, because that person, whoever that might be, would be asking people to go out and vote. After all of this, after this monolithic, you know, shouting 
uh, that everyone had to go and vote in Florida and Illinois while it's while Biden's you know lead was even more tenuous. Uh, after everyone everyone shouting and no one disagreeing with them anyway, but the, that vote needed to happen even after you as you pointed out well after this was recognized as a national emergency and too dangerous for a public debate. Uh, now Maddow wants to say, and it's clear who the hypothetical people are here. Now Maddow wants to say that if Sanders continues in the primary, he's risking people's lives by asking them to go out and risk their health and safety during the pandemic. Uh, let me just, just let me, let me just re- and, and Halfer pointed out. Go ahead. Well, it, the, the the reminder here is that uh, Biden spokesperson Simone Sanders went on, what is this, CNN? Yeah, she went on CNN and said this. Um, is, is extremely important. Even in times of strife in this country, we have to do our duty. So uh, the CDC and folks have said it's safe out there for Tuesday. So I, you know, I don't know what Senator Sanders is talking about, but I'll tell you, Governor DeWine said it was safe in Ohio. So I, I encourage people to get out there and vote on Tuesday. So Simone Sanders, uh, totally uh, mangled. The CDC said it did, did said it was unsafe. Uh, Ohio totally postponed their primary, and it wasn't safe. And uh, so Bernie Sanders was like, "Look, if 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 you don't risk your life to vote." So at the same time, you had, and this is this is my uh, hypocritical moment, and then we'll pass it over to Janine, but I just want to make sure that we get this out there because it's just, it's just gobsmacking. Um, uh, again, we've got Nira Tandon, and this was the day before, the day before uh, the primary, so on the 16th, March 16th, Nira Tandon subtweets uh, Brianna Joy Gray, and Joy Gray is responding to that Simone Sanders clip, and she said that Simone Sanders just said on CNN with Chris Cuomo that the CDC said it's safe to vote on Tuesday. That's wrong. Naritana subtweets that and says, is the Sanders campaign telling people not to vote on Tuesday? Well, yeah, we're telling people to be reasonable and to be safe. Then on March 23, Naritana tweets out about the Trump people. He says that these people are willing to have people die to help their reelection. There is no bottom, none. <laughs> and so that's that was in reaction to uh, coronavirus stuff. So I'm a leader right there. That is that is quite a plateful of hypocrisy to feast on as we um, bring on Janine Caller. Thank you so much. Feel free to call in any time. We will explore stuff. You're you're one of my favorite callers, so uh, uh, keep up the good work. You keep up the good work. Bye-bye. All right. Now we've got, we've got Janine. Janine Muller. Amazing This is Janine's intro. This is my first song. Mm-hmm. And this 
fade that out. Hey, Janine. Hi, Brooke. It's so yeah. good to have oh, you on. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, more coronavirus. Um, I'm going to continue just pointing out how this crisis has been made far worse than it even had to be. You know, from the very beginning, I've maintained this just felt like we were being lied to, and it felt like a lot of the shortages were somehow being manufactured. And the truth is we've been lied to a lot. And unfortunately, those lies come in many forms. Some are half-truth, while others are just bold whoppers. Among the lies are the following. One, we can't get enough face masks for respirators for our medical personnel. And big pharma needs to price gouge. That's two, including on treatments for highly contagious killer pandemics, such as the present COVID-19 crisis, because, again, they have to invest heavily in R&D or research and development. Both claims are lies. And here's part of the story. First of all, the coronavirus treatment that we've been talking about, one of the possibilities is a drug called remdesivir. And it was developed, allegedly developed by Gilead Science. Now, just this past uh, Monday, I think it was on the 23rd, it, the Food and Drug Administration uh, granted remdesivir under Gilead Science uh, auspices orphan drug status. They have to understand what that means. Orphan drug status is basically something that's given to promising treatments for for diseases or conditions that are very limited occurrence, rare diseases. And frankly, COVID-19 couldn't get any more opposite of rare than, you know, you possibly could. And why would Gilead want that? Well, the designation allows a pharmaceutical company like Gilead to profit exclusively for seven years from that particular uh, drug. And this is one of the promising ones that could be used to treat COVID-19. And what you have to also understand is this. Donald Trump's task force maintains close ties to Gilead, and they do so um, is coronavirus crisis through a man named Joe Grogan. And Grogan's, Joe Grogan serves on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Grogan also lobbied for Gilead from 2011 to 2017. And he lobbied for Gilead on several issues, including pharmaceutical pricing. And when you look at the Orphan Drug Act, again, it's for rare diseases. And COVID-19 is the opposite of a rare disease that you could possibly think of. And this isn't just me saying this. This is an opinion coming from James Love, who's the director of Knowledge Ecology International. And Knowledge Ecology International is a big pharma patent abuse watchdog group. One of the things we're running into with all these critical shortages, whether it's face masks, otherwise known as respirators, or a shortage, critical shortage of ventilators for patients, gloves, or uh, uh, testing equipment, um, possible drugs, and so on. When you get past it, each and every time you see armies of patent attorneys that work for a variety of sources, whether it is a big bank, um, big pharma, a Wall Street firm, whatever. And this is about maintaining those shortages and keeping the price up. 
and the public is paying as a result. So this report tonight is really, again, a little more of a, an overview because there's more to come. Now, when you talk about the Orphan Drug Act of 1983, why would they want that? Well, it gives some inducements to big pharma. Um, and one of the things it does, there is a seven-year period of market exclusivity. Okay, orphan status means that, um, you know, they have this monopoly that no one can touch. It also gives those same companies various grants and tax credits of like 25% of the, get this, the clinical drug testing cost. Now, again, the laws reserved for drugs for, that basically affect fewer than 200,000 people. Now, the Orphan Drug Act, and, and again, COVID's already gone way beyond that. The Orphan Drug Act has a loophole also that Gilead took advantage of. And the loophole is this. Uh, it allows drugs to treat more common illnesses to be, like COVID, to be treated as orphans. Here's the quote. Quote, if the designation is given before the disease reaches that threshold. Okay. Now, at press time on the 23rd, when this, uh, this article from the Intercept came through, and um, there were more than 40,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. and some 366,000 worldwide. Why does this matter? Why this particular thing creates a real death panel that's been allowed by the Trump administration? Allowing remdesivir to be classified as an orphan, as an orphan drug, basically gives Gilead Science not only protection over the drug, but it gives them complete control of its price. See, there are other pharmaceutical firms. There's one in India, India-based pharmaceutical called CIPLA, and they're working towards a generic form of remdesivir. Um, but again, because Gilead had remdesivir uh, designated as an orphan, people in the U.S. are not going to be allowed to buy generics that cost less. Now, on March 23rd, the same day the story broke, Gilead cut off emergency access to remdesivir. Okay, now that changed, but still. Gilead announced that it wasn't going to provide emergency access. They told the New York Times that, quote, overwhelming demand uh, left them utterly unable to process requests for that drug in what they call a compassionate use program. Hours after that, after that announcement, the FDA gave Gilead and remdesivir orphan status. And then within hours, Gilead's stock price went straight up. And that was according, uh, basically, uh, this was SeekingAlpha.com. So Gilead didn't respond to the reporters. Now, here's the thing that's really damning, and I spoke about this before. We're not going to get through everything tonight, but I spoke about this. In previous reports, I spoke about how quite a few drugs are basically developed on the public dime, basically through taxpayer-funded research through the National Institute of Health. And remdesivir is no exception. Remdesivir was developed with 79 million of U.S. taxpayer funding, and yet there is no reasonable pricing requirement. I'm going to repeat that. Remdesivir was developed with 79 million of our tax dollars, and yet Gilead is going to be allowed to control the pricing. So even if Gilead, and Gilead did backtrack a little bit, 
it doesn't matter. They control it. Um, so now we have that going on. Um, and the Orphan Drug Act, again, the idea was to bring drugs that normally would not come to market because they didn't see any any cost value in developing drugs for small, you know, for conditions that don't affect many people. But it, it's also helped, the Orphan Drug Act has helped pharmaceutical, big pharma, uh, in terms of their profits. In 2018, um, and again, this according to Gerald Tosner, uh, who is the author of a book called Pharma Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. In 2018, as a quote, the median cost for a year of treatment with an orphan drug was $98,500 compared to $5,000 for drugs that don't have the designation. Now, that's a big difference. Again, in 2018, the quote is the median cost for a your treatment with an orphan drug was $98,500 compared to $5,000 for drugs that don't have that designation. And again, Gerald Posner's book is Pharma Greed, Lies in the Poisoning of America. Now, getting back to Joe Brogan, right now in Trump's cabinet, you have two um, former lobbyists from Big Pharma. One is Alex Azar, who's the head of Health and Human Services. And um, then you also have Joe Brogan. And Joe Brogan, in 2016, according to this article, earned over $800,000 in salary and some bonuses at Gilead, okay? And he did, uh, he was scrutinized because apparently in 2018, when he was still at Gilead, he was criticized for a Medicare payment model for a cancer treatment. I don't know much about that one yet. But Gilead also has sparked some controversy. Uh, this is this company that listed its hepatitis C drug, Sovati, for $84,000 for a 12-week course of therapy, and I, I spoke about that in another show. Um, Gilead also sells Truvada, which is supposed to help prevent the HIV transmission. It costs almost 2000 a month, even though, <laughs> this is the real kicker, it only costs $6 to manufacture. So this is, and when you add these these unbelievable price increases to the fact that most of these drugs, especially drugs developed, according to another study, between 2010 and 2016, were developed by the, the research was done by the NIH, not R&D from Big Pharma. This is totally out of line. And um, now we have this. Now, on March 24th, um, the orphan designation, uh, let's see, I'm sorry. So basically we've got this now. On March 25th, I stand corrected, Gilead did renounce the benefits of orphan designation in direct, you know, response to that previous article. But Gilead does still retain other patents that give them a five-year monopoly on remdesivir. Now the question is this, we already paid for COVID, this other article, written by Alex Lawson of the Independent Media Institute. The title is, we already paid for COVID-19 treatments. We cannot let Gilead make us pay again. Again, we're talking about jacked up prices for drugs that are, going to, that are needed to treat a highly contagious pandemic, all right? We, you know, we, it's not a matter of whether or not you can afford cancer treatment and, oh, well, 
this is a matter of if you don't treat everybody that needs treatment, this is never going to stop. This is highly communicable. So here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. We've all heard, again, we've all heard the excuse by big pharma that they need to charge, they need to price gouge because they have this huge expense for R&D or research and de development, because that's not true. So the research has, and development has already been done by the National Institute of Health. Now, here's the deal. If U.S. taxpayers have already paid for the research and testing of, these mo of the most promising treatments, then why can't we get these treatments at basically next to zero cost? And once again, we have an administration, not just the Trump administration, okay? Some of this nonsense went on in previous administrations too, including the Obama administration. But right now we're under Trump, and the fact is his drug policy is still being led by two former pharma execs, and that's Alex Azar and, and Joe Brogan. And Azar was the pharma CEO that was made infamous when he doubled the price of insulin. When he was questioned by Congress, Azar also refused to guarantee that any coronavirus vaccine would be affordable to anyone. And again, he talked about big pharma's pocketbook. And again, this is something everybody has to have potential access to treatment and or vaccines for the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, once again, we taxpayers have already spent some, get this, $700 million on COVID-19 research through the National Institute of Health. Trump fails to mention this inconvenient truth or the other fact that big pharma spends more on, and this has been documented and I have the documentation, Big Pharma spends more on stock buybacks than they do on research and development. And that was also cited by a New York Times report in um, 2017, and the title was Big Pharma Spends on Share Buybacks, but R&D not so much. So we've been lied to there, all right? And that is basically where they are abusing patent privilege. Now we go a little further, again, Remdesivir was developed on the public dime. It was not developed by Gilead. And so now we go down and we've got a few other lies. Lie number two, how we're being denied medical supplies, simple ones such as respirators, and this is because of patent trolls in the large extent. So earlier this week, Nurses United sent out a mass email. They explained that the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, advised any healthcare workers I hope you're sitting down, to use bandanas if respirators were not available. Oh, my God. Yes, and the email included a photo of several nurses sporting brightly colored bandanas. Now, we've been told that we can't get these respirators. It's just they can't manufacture them fast enough. That's a lie. There are respirators available, but a lot of them are being made by China. China and here's an article. China's making tons of PPE respirators. This is the, uh, an article by Daniel Neushauser. Um, good enough for Asia and Europe, but U.S. hospitals can't buy them. And one of the reasons U.S. hospitals are afraid of them is because of lawsuits. Not kidding. So, there, and these respirators have worked in the other parts of the world just fine. So there's hundreds of factories, according to this article, in China. They are producing millions of masks. And these masks are being used to help suppress the virus across Europe, Asia. But importers here can't get them into the United States. And why? Because they haven't been certified by our FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Not kidding. Then you also have some government regulations 
that prefer American products, and then you've got some old-fashioned billing practices, but mainly you have hospital administrators that are terrified of being sued. And so they're preventing nurses and other first responders from obtaining this necessary equipment. And that is putting nurses, doctors, uh, police officers, everybody in, they're, they're, they're putting them in danger. They're endangering their own lives. There is no reason for it. And so basically, nurses are being told around the country, once again, either use a bandana or if they do have a U.S. government approved N, what's called an N95 respirator, they've been instructed to reuse them and reuse them so often that it's really not, not effective anymore. Now, the government, according to CNBC, said, said that basically uh, we have only 1% of the 3.5 billion N95s that we need to fight the virus. Now, 3M, who's the major manufacturer of these masks, has said they pledge they're going to produce more than a billion N95s by the end of the year, but can we afford to wait for 3M? That's the thing. You know, here in St. Louis, we have General Motors, and I guess around the country, too, they're make, they're, they've retooled to make ventilators. But once again, can we wait that long? And I'm saying we can't. Apparently, the Chinese, you know, again, the Chinese N95 masks, they might not meet FDA regulations. They may not be quite as good, but really, according to medical professionals, they offer comp what they say, quote, comparable levels of protection. And let's face it, it's going to be better than using a bandana or, you know, some nurses have taken to using a bra cup. I'm not kidding. Oh and but again, these hospitals—I'm—I'm I'm not kidding. I'm—I'm I'm dead serious. When I saw the email from Nurses United earlier this week, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. All right, there is no excuse for this. We have been lied to. These shortages have been manufactured. We've been told that we can't obtain these things. That's just not true. It just isn't true. Now. You go back a little further, and I'm going to skip ahead here because this is an overview. I have so much information, it's not even funny. Um, mm -hmm. Another lie that we've been told, number three, how patent trolls are suppressing necessary telemedicine. Okay? And this is an article written by Jerry Rogers, and it's coronavirus patent trolls in telemedicine. And telemedicine has turned out to be a major lifesaver. Okay, it, it truly has, especially if you live in a, you know, let's say a very far part of uh, Alaska where you can't get to a doctor. You know, again, this connects patients with medical professionals. And also, if maybe they're not sick enough to have to go to the hospital yet, it, they get care. Now, in all fairness, okay, as much as I despise President Trump, okay, the fact is he did just sign, according to the AP News, he did sign legislation allowing Medicare to expand the use of telemedicine in what they call vulnerable areas, okay? So, you know, once again, he's done a little bit. Uh, and some of those areas are places like northern Alaska where, you know, again, maybe you live in an area where it's only accessible by dog sleds or seaplanes. We need these, you know. Excuse me. Um, sorry about that. Anyways, uh, getting ahead here. Health insurers like Anthem have partnered with various smartphone manufacturers like Samsung 
um, and they use an app called, uh, let's see, it's called Alive Health Online. And again, they get access to licensed healthcare providers for non-emergency consults 24-7, and again, it works. Well, here's the problem with this, okay? The black hats, as they put in the IT industry, the bad guys, patent trolls. Mm-hmm. You would think they wouldn't be here in IT, but they are. And they set up, they're trying to basically get a fast profit. They are using what this author calls, quote, cynical legal strategies, and they, quote, inappropriately leverage the judicial system and government agencies to advance their financial interests at the expense of the public interest, end quote. And they're holding telemedicine basically hostage by using legal processes in the U.S. And here's how, and this is how they do it. There's a U.S. government-funded agency, and I'm going to try to make this fast, the U.S. International Trade Commission. And it serves as a forum to aid or assist patent trolls. And these same legal trolls abuse the rest of us. So the U.S. International Trade Commission, the USITC, is independent, nonpartisan, it's a federal agency. And the idea was it was supposed to protect American industries from, like, unfair competition from various imports. It's very popular, these patent trolls. And these patent trolls, they are, according to um, the electric Electronic Frontier Foundation, quote, in the business of litigation or even just threatening litigation, end quote. So they use the, what's called the intimidation power of this agency with what's called an exclusion order. And the exclusion order bans categories of products from our marketplace, okay? And the ITC moves faster than the courts, so the, just even the threat makes a lot of companies and a lot of hospital administrations back down. And our tax dollars are funding this agency. And an exclusion order, if the USITC um, decides that an import is violating an intellectual property or IP right that, that's comparable to a, that involves our domestic industry, it can ban that type of imported product at the U.S. border. This is true even if the patent is just one of hundreds of thousands of patents incorporated into a single product. Oh, and the court, yeah, and the courts in these intellectual property disputes, they don't really do this. They usually rely on money damages. But these trolls are exploiting the threat of the ban. Basically, criminally extort money from these companies. And now the trolls are going after these emerging health technologies such as telemedicine. And I'm going to skip ahead here because, again, there's more. These trolls, basically what they're doing is they are constraining any innovation, including, you know, new models for uh, treatment, possible new cures even. And what has to happen here, according to Jerry Rogers in Real Clear Health, we must demand serious reforms at the USITC so patent trolls are cut off and make it a criminal offense, in my opinion, of reckless endangerment to endanger public health for profit. Now, there's more, and this is about a portable test that Abbott Labs has unveiled. I don't have time for that one. I'm going to skip down ahead. But they, they did come up with a portable testing um, game changer. It can detect the virus in five minutes. Not kidding. But it's only been granted emergency use authorization, which means only in certain hospitals. And we need it out there in the, you know, in the field, not just in the hospital. 
Yeah, again, the FDA severely limited the test. My question is why? So basically, it's our own government working against us. There is no, you know, no guesswork here. Um, this is something that is it's, it's very portable. The machine weighs seven pounds. I'm not kidding. So the conclusion, and again, because we're at 7.56 now, I mean 8.56 where you're at, the ugly truth, and again, this is an overview, and I'm going to go into it in more detail. The ugly truth is that the majority of research and development into new pharmaceuticals or medical devices, including testing systems for COVID-19 and drugs like remdesivir, doesn't come out of Gilead's or Pfizer's budget. It comes out of the taxpayer's pockets through the National Institute of Health. According to a new study by the Center for Integration of Science and Industry, or CISI, there would be no new drugs or subsequent patents, profits, or big pharma industry without the NIH being fully funded. Trump tried to cut the funding recently, and big pharma raised a big sink, and the funding was basically restored. Because, again, they like that freebie. The SISI study mapped the correlation between NIH-funded research and every new FDA-approved drug between 2010 and 2016. Every one of the 210 approved drugs was developed from NIH-supported research. You would think that we could subsidize the cost to the taxpayer, but the lobbyists, politicians, and patent attorneys for big pharma made sure that would never happen. Not only is the NIH prevented from being reimbursed by Big Pharma, as in making Big Pharma pay royalties, Wall Street made damn sure that the research generated by publicly funded labs never benefits the public. Rather, Wall Street, in my opinion, steals the research, tweaks it a bit, and patents the final slightly adjusted product. In short, Wall Street is the biggest freeloader of them all, except now, we have a public danger that is costing lives. And as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion, every person that was involved in all of this or knew about it or remained silent, when all is said and done, they should all be criminally prosecuted for reckless endangerment, conspiracy to commit reckless endangerment, um, criminal malfeasance, you name it. But we have been lied to. These shortages are not only unnecessary, it's not true. And we're going to continue this report, but that's my report for today. Thank you so much, Janine. That was amazing, as always. And we will talk to you again on Sunday. I'm going to leave sure. listeners with these numbers in the last 90 seconds. Uh, I just got this information on the differences in deaths in the state of Florida between doing social distancing shelter in place and a lockdown. If we only do mm -hmm. social dis distancing, we're looking at 320,000 deaths. If we oh, only geez. do shelter in place, we are looking at uh, 9,000 uh, deaths, 9,000 deaths. And if we do a lockdown, we're looking at less than 1,000 deaths. So keep that in mind. Look, everybody stay safe. We everybody have to do a lockdown. You know, we have to do a lockdown. I've been locked we in do. for two weeks, and I don't miss people. <laughs> All <laughs> right, you guys. I'm going to leave you with some swampy copyright-free music, and we will see you next week. Wash your hands.
wash your hands, get stuff delivered. Be good, stay safe, stay alive, and we'll see you next week. We love you. Bye.